Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast, hosted by the policy and litigation team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform at Bloomberg LP. This podcast examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Dwayne Wright, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering government healthcare policy. And I'm Michael Shaw, European farmer and biotech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So our topic for today is the coverage and reimbursement outlook for weight loss medication coverage in the Medicare and commercial markets. Given the recent clinical advancements, increasing demand, and growing marketplace competition, there's a lot of talk about how and whether the Medicare program should cover weight loss medications. An important topic since the Part D program is prohibited from covering weight loss medications, but we're lucky to have Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center to unpack the key issues of this important topic. The BPC is a nonprofit think tank that engages Republicans and Democrats to promote bipartisanship in policy development. Now some background on Bill. Uh, Prior to BPC, Bill spent 33 years in the federal government, including as a staff member for Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. He was a director of the Senate Budget Committee for Senator Pete Domenici of New Mexico, a special assistant administrator at the Department of Agriculture, and a staff member at the Congressional Budget Office. In fact, I believe he was one of the first uh, staff members at the CBO. Uh, Prior to joining BPC in September, uh, he was at Cigna as Vice President of Public Policy. Bill and the BPC have been studying the important policy issue of whether Medicare should remove the exclusion for weight loss drugs. The BPC has endorsed legislation to expand Medicare coverage of anti-obesity medication, so we're looking forward to today's discussion. So with that, Bill, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. So before we jump into the questions, a bit of background uh, for any listeners not familiar with the obesity space. Um, As Dwayne mentioned, we've seen significant clinical advancement um, in the area over the last few years, driven largely by Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, um, which have raised the efficacy bar um, in the space and narrowed the the gap versus bariatric surgery. Um, We published an analysis in May um, forecasting that sales from on-market and late-stage pipeline drugs could top $44 billion in obesity in 2030. Given the updates that we've seen at the ADA, ADA clinical conference, um, as well as um, prescription trends and, and Wagobi's robust outcomes data, that now seems rather conservative. Uh, with a US target population of upwards of 140 million um, people and relatively low penetration rates, um, in part due to limited efficacy of first generation uh, therapies, which showed sub 10% weight loss. Um, and the fact that it's historically largely been an out-of-pocket market, we see significant runway for second-generation drugs such as Wagovi and Lily's Zepatide, 
while while pending um, innovations such as oral GLP-1s could f further help unlock this cycle for opportunity. Now, swing factors in the space that will ultimately determine how big this market could get um, include broad reimbursement, um, as well as Medicare, um, as well as whether Medicare coverage can be secured. Uh, so that brings us nicely to the key topic of this podcast. Um, so perhaps, Bill, um, before we start, could you perhaps tell us, um, you know, how you came to join the Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, maybe a bit more about what the BPC um, is about, and the work that you're doing to educate people about the economic and clinical benefits of broader coverage of weight loss medication? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Michael and Wayne, for the invitation to be here. Um, the Bipartisan Policy Center was established about 15 years ago by four former majority leaders of the United States Senate, uh, two Republicans, two Democrats. Uh, on the Republican side was this late uh, Senator Bob Dole and Howard Baker, and on the uh, Democratic side, Senator George Mitchell and Senator Tom Daschle. And as the name would imply, the organization came into existence for the purposes of trying to find in this very hyper-partisan world that we live in today, uh, how to find solutions to some of these major issues that face the country. Um, I had came here uh, at the request of uh, those, some of those former members themselves, Senator Dole, who was, uh, I worked with, as well as Senator Baker on the Hill, and uh, Senator Pete Domenici, who mentioned, uh, Dwayne mentioned, I was, uh, was uh, Staff Director, Senate Budget Committee. He was here, as was uh, Alice Rivlin, who was the first director of CBO, and they asked me to come here uh, after I was I was at Cigna for a few days, a few years after uh, leaving the Hill. Uh, so I've been here for now going on 11, 12 years, uh, still struggling to find bipartisanship in this town on a number of issues. Uh, but with my fiscal background, uh, budget background, um, it's no question, but this is a, uh, this issue that we're going to talk about today is critical uh, since healthcare and Medicare, particularly a trillion dollar a year, expenditure of the federal budget is uh, important and whether or not uh, we should be adding to those costs uh, with expansion of say coverage of uh, obesity drugs is going to be a major issue. And perhaps just to set the scene, um, what obesity services um, are Medicare or are covered currently under Medicare? And you know, why did the lawmakers explicitly exclude the drugs um, or weight loss drug when it passed the Med Medicare Modernization Act, also known as the Part D uh, program? Sure. Uh, Medicare today covers, uh, does cover uh, some of the obesity uh, drugs as well as obesity services of bariatric services, bariatric surgery as an example, uh, when patients meet certain conditions related to morbid obesity. Um, this can be, of course, very expensive too. It's uh, between, estimated between 15000 and 23000 if you do not have insurance to cover, cover it. Uh, there's a Medicare diabetes prevention program that wants uh, a once per lifetime health behavior change at programs to help uh, prevent uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, uh, it's a program that recommends changes in diet and exercise and uh, strategies to control weight. Uh, there's a Medicare covers nutrition therapy services if, if you have diabetes or kidney disease. Uh, there is a, a obesity behavioral uh, therapy. Uh, and uh, if, uh, the, if the BMI is over 30. In addition, some Medicare Advantage programs uh, 
provide additional benefits such as gym membership subscriptions. But, but as, as you said, the vast majority uh, of drugs are not covered. And why are they not covered? Well, uh, first of all, it's always hard to ascertain why members of Congress opt at certain decisions and did, did not uh, do this. But the concept of adding Part D uh, to the Medicare program was to mimic uh, statutory restrictions for Medicaid. Uh, that all goes back to some of the bills I worked on, OBRA in 1990 and OBRA in 1993. And those early uh, uh, programs we had learned uh, did have a restriction on coverage, and that was just continued on in Part D. Uh, obesity, and to be clear, was it was, and it still is. I uh, unfortunately considered by some to be a cosmetic issue and uh, not a chronic health condition. I think we've learned a lot more. And cosmetic drug therapy is not covered by Medicare. So you add it all up, and that's in part why. Uh, Medicare does not cover uh, uh, some of these uh, obesity drugs that are coming coming to into for into to the uh, market today. So fast forward, uh, it's 2023, and there have been efforts to remove this exclusion. Uh, can you tell us where that effort stands now in terms of proposals that are being debated in Congress and? What are the major roadblocks to advancing uh, this legislation? Well, thank you, Dwayne. That gets right to the issue. Uh, Troia uh, is a is major legislation. This is legislation. Troia is an acronym that stands for Treat and Reduce Obesity Act, and literally, it was just introduced uh, right before the Senate went out uh, uh, for the August recess back on July twentieth. It's a bipartisan bill uh, it's, and was introduced uh, also in the previous Congress. Uh, its sponsors today are in the Senate are Tom Carper and Bill Cassidy, uh, Democrat and Republican, Louisiana and Delaware, and uh, Representatives Paul Roos from California and Brad Winstrup uh, from Ohio in the House. Um, the bill uh, would expand and, reduce, and uh, provide coverage to include screening and, and treatment of obesity for a diverse uh, range of healthcare providers who specialize in obesity care. But specifically to your question, the bill would also include coverage of FDA approved medications for chronic weight management. Why is it, why is it the restrictions placed in the law? Uh, and as we said, uh, going back all the way to um, mimicking the Medicaid programs back in the 1990s. So the, the major hurdle here today to advancing this legislation is simply to, if you are to remove the restriction, uh, uh, then under, you'd have to pass a law uh, that took away those restrictions. In taking away, in passing that law under the uh, procedures of the budget, Congressional Budget Empowerment Control Act, uh, it, the Congressional Budget Office would have to score what that particular piece of legislation would mean. Uh, and uh, that's where we come to the con conclusion. If, if you were to remove the restrictions, there would be a cost estimate on the bill. 
Some people, uh, estimates vary, and we can get into this in terms of how it would be done, but it, the, some peer-reviewed articles in the National uh, New England Journal of Medicine said that just if just 10% of the adults over the age of 60 were to subscribe to semaglutite, uh, which is civic and leucobia, um, if they were just to do that at an annual cost of anywhere from 10000 to $14,000 per person on an annual basis uh, and immediately without insurance, this would, uh, this would cost the Part D Medicare program nearly $28 billion uh, annually. Uh, and let's be clear that uh, uh, my understanding of the, how these drugs work, it's you on them, you want to continue to maintain it. So this is a, a 10 year cost estimate would be a, $2.8 trillion. Uh, in this world that we're living in with uh, concerns over our fiscal expenditures, uh, this is, would be something that would have to be offset, if you like, so it doesn't add to the deficit, which makes it difficult uh, for those members. How are they going to pay for um, a $2.8 trillion, potential $2.8 trillion cost of uh, this uh, for removing the restriction? Um, so th this is the, as always, it comes down to cost. And uh, because of this, oh, one, one, one other thing I want to quickly point out, um, the Medicare, uh, as you all know, has various uh, sectors, Part A, Part B, D, and C. Um, and Part A is the hospital insurance uh, component of Medicare. And the hospital Medicare uh, HI trust fund uh, will be depleted. Uh, its uh, assets will be depleted by 2031, I believe it is. Uh, so this uh, a decision to remove this restriction, if it were to increase costs by the amount that I've talked about, would simply speed up the depletion of that trust fund. And if that trust fund were depleted, um, it would mean something like a 20%, 17 to 20% reduction in overall uh benefits, uh, uh, the provide, uh, payment to providers. So this is a, uh, this is all tied up as sometimes it always comes back to uh, uh, what are the costs, how are they going to be paid for, and what will be the impact on the overall program. Hearing you talk about this reminds me of my uh, former life as a uh, lobbyist uh, for the device industry and other entities, as well as a as a Hill staffer, and whenever there was a conversation about new policies, whether it was adding something to the tax code, taking away something from the tax code, or something specific to health policy, it always came back to, well, has CBO scored the proposal? What's the cost estimate? Is this going to save money? How does it save money? So can you uh, just uh, for folks who don't understand what the Congressional Budget Office is, what is their role anytime legislation advances on the Hill? And what process do they use to estimate the revenue and spending effects of a proposed policy? As, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, I was uh, uh, one of the early employees of the Congressional Budget Office when it was established. So I'm an alumni of that organization and maybe biased a little bit, but let's be clear what why we have the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, literally 50 years ago next year, 
uh, we had a crisis, uh, which was the, uh, the president, President Nixon, who was uh, ha who had uh, impounded monies, uh, and uh, and the Congress uh, wanted to do something about this. And a long story short, be, uh, resulted in the creation of and the passage of before. President Nixon, literally one of the last pieces of legislation he signed, a passage of the Congressional Budget Impoundment Control Act of 1974. So this 50-year-old act next year created two new committees, the Senate Budget Committee, a House Budget Committee, and it also created the Congressional Budget Office. And the Congressional Budget Office was designed to be, and under the first director, Alice Rivlin, the lady that brought me over here to Bipartisan Policy Center later on in her career, um, was designed to be a nonpartisan organization that, re that provided estimates to both the House and Senate, Democrats, Republicans, committees on legislation uh, that uh, they were considering as doing the best they could to provide an estimate because it was necessary to, uh, uh, as part of the Congressional Budget Payment Control Act, Congress was to adopt a budget um, they haven't been doing that recently, but they were to adopt a budget that would set uh, the level of overall level of spending. So it was important to know if uh, legislation was violating that budget uh, budget that Congress had. And so CBO was set up uh, to provide that, as I say, nonpartisan objective analysis of legislation as it was being uh, considered and enacted uh, to see how it stacked up against the uh, uh, overall budget blueprint that Congress had put together. And if legislation uh, uh, violated, let's say, uh, resulted in breaking that budget, then uh, uh, under the Budget Act, uh, certain things happened, which included uh, Budget Act points of order, which would literally stop the legislation from being considered. How CBO goes about this is like any good analyst, as you were, Dwayne, and others in this case, you ended up to data, data, data. It was research. Uh, the analyst uh, at the Congressional Budget Office would put the, would uh, look at the legislation. They would base their, their best estimates on current economic forecast and what we call baseline. And so they would estimate their the impact of the legislation relative to uh, a baseline, which assumed no, uh, no change in current policy. And uh, this uh, is uh, ongoing. I was, uh, my job there early on was in the area of the food nutrition area. So I had to make estimates uh, as the best I could about how the food stamp program at that time called the food stamp program changes in it, how it would impact the budget. And uh, these are good analysts. Uh, they are analysts um, and they do the best they can, uh, but they base their estimates on uh, data and research, review studies, and actually look at Bloomberg intelligence studies and also, as they're going through this, and so um, uh, it is a uh, it's a difficult task, but they are they do the best they can to provide the best estimates they can relative to the policy that uh, is being proposed. I'm heartened to hear that they look at uh, BI studies. So thank you. <laughs> I, I, I I made sure that they did see that latest study. <laughs> that you and, and it's fun. It's interesting. You know, they they do a lot of hard work and i just know based on my own experience if they come back with an estimate that you like they've done a great job if they don't well you know 
they haven't done a, a great job. So it's, it's all in the eye of the, the beholder. Uh, but you know, tying in the, the CBO angle with the, the topic of expanding coverage to anti-obesity medications, you know, CBO did look at this issue about eight years ago, 2015, and, and put out a white paper. And again, it's 2015. A lot has happened since then. And at the time, the agency said that there wasn't enough evidence to support uh, the conclusion that certain policies to stem obesity would generate savings for the federal government. Now, they were also likely talking about some of the non-therapeutic services as well. But do you think, based on conversations you're having, do you think that there is an evolution in CBO's thinking around how obesity drugs could play into potential cost savings, especially when you think about what uh, Novo uh, released a couple of weeks ago relating to their study and the, the reduction in cardiovascular risk. You think we're on the cusp of CBO providing some additional data points that can be used to help pass or maybe even slow down passage of a bill? Well, first of all, thank you. I, th I do think that uh, as you mentioned the, um, the uh, CBO blog that was in 2015 estimating the effects of federal policies targeting obesity. And that particular blog does say, literally says in there, that they will continue to look at, at, at new data, new research that comes to fore. And uh, they are continually looking at this. In fact, I uh, can't speak for CBO, but I uh, have talked to uh, uh, a number of their analysts and uh, they, they recognize that there's been a lot of a lot of movement here since uh, 2015, but I'll be fair with you. I highly doubt that one study from Novo uh, would materially change uh, right now uh, the CBO's approach in terms of the analysis and thinking. And um, so are we on your point? Are we on the cusp of CBO providing an estimate here? I can tell you uh, not, not soon at all. Uh, they are still uh, looking at this, there are a lot of issues still. Um, we can get into it, but uh, what what they go through in terms of making the, these estimates. But uh, uh, I do not expect uh, the Congressional Budget Office will be releasing any new estimates on the or estimates on the Troa bill uh, anytime uh, in the at least uh, it'll be well into uh, late uh, fall, if not winter. Um, if, if they do it even then. And, and I mean, I think our listeners would be interested in, in kind of knowing, you know, what process do you envisage the CBO using um, to get to that estimate? Um, and, and kind of what would the key components of um, their analysis be, in your opinion? The CBO will um, approach this as they always do in a uh, very methodical and multi-stage process uh, that they'll use. Uh, the process uh, will involve making estimates, particularly, in fact, I think the uh, study that uh, Dwayne mentioned uh, lays this out, and have not, they're not changing their methodology. They're going to look particularly at three major uh, factors. Number one, they're going to want to know uh, what's the, for those, if, the, if we were to do away with the, ex the exemption uh, and Medicare were to provide, was to then 
provide these uh, drugs. Uh, first of all, they want to know what the initial uh, uh, BMI is for those who participate. So they will look at the underlying BMI distribution of participants. Uh, of course, greater BMI, greater potential reduction in health spend. That's number one. Number two, they'll, they'll look at the, how will the intervention of any of these drugs uh, uh, that, that we're talking about here, how will they change? And they'll base that upon looking at the studies that uh, you mentioned from Novo and Eli Lilly and others out there. They'll look at those studies. Uh, one thing I want to highlight, and I glanced at these studies and I looked at your uh, intelligence report, which, which is very nicely laid out. The one thing I could not uh, identify was the age of the population. It appeared to me that the trial studies was, uh, um, uh, I, don't know who the, I don't know who the population was. And this is critical as it relates to uh, the Medicare population. We need to focus on what the impact these drugs would have on that particular population over the age of 65 that qualifies. So they're going to want to know that how that intervention changes that BMI. And most importantly, they want to know how, how long would the weight loss be sustained. And then their third thing, they'll take an average uh, healthcare spending for participants given a particular BMI uh, and how that would change as a result of the weight loss. And they'll be able to then uh, uh, make the final calculation on what the cost would be. There's going to be some assumptions that will have to be made here, participation being one of them. Um, the evidence, uh, particularly on that third factor, that one about how average healthcare spending will change, is uh, quite limited today. Uh, but they will continue to monitor new and related research and incorporate any pertinent information into the methodology that, uh, that, it, that they have. It will, it will be a thorough study. Um, and I just want to emphasize that I, I could have missed it. I could be out of uh, not uh, focusing where I should be, but it's very important to know what the impact this particular change would have on that population over age of 65. It could be much different than a popular, than a, say a younger younger age population. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think the the detailed data of the um, of, of Novo's trial is going to be presented in, in November. So hopefully we'll be able to see some subgroup analysis um, split by age um, when, when the details of that is, is presented. Um, but just going back on um, on kind of the assumptions that you, the, the CBO, that you envisage the CBO, you know, using. I mean, one of the things we, well, one of the swing factors in our modeling is, you know, how long do these, patients stay on therapy for. Now, there's data out there to show that, well, for Wagovi or semaglutide, um, that, you know, patients were seeing um, weight decreases through, throughout, you know, two years. Lillian Novo's presented trials um, as well, um, supporting chronic dosing, dosing um, with weight regain being shown when these drugs were stopped. So, um, I, I'll be interested, to, you know, just to get your thoughts on, on whether you think the CBO would look at this as a, as a chronic medication or um, or more of a kind of a, they'll adopt a, a treat to target approach um, kind of in their modeling. Well, it's a good question. It's one of those assumptions that literally they'll have to make as to whether this is a permanent or uh, 
for long-term chronic maintenance or whether it's uh, short-term. Um, but I think the way they'll approach it, as I say, is looking at the facts as best they can and the trials and, ex and experience individuals have had with the drug and what share of the participants out there uh, in, in the trials in the past. And again, in the age population we're talking about, they'll have to focus on that particular subset out there. Uh, would they complete the full uh, course of treatment? And uh, so that is a, a critical factor, Michael, in terms of uh, uh, whether this is a permanent, uh, of course, it will have a major impact if people, uh, if you have to, if, if you have to maintain uh, your uh, treatment and uh, continue to take these drugs uh, to have any impact upon reduction in uh, uh, healthcare costs. It's a major uh, variable that we have to focus on as to whether this is, whether individuals who are taking these drugs uh, recognize it as uh, something that they're going to have to take, continue to do permanently versus uh, short term. And then, I, I mean, you touched on it earlier as well. Um, you know, these these obesity drugs could, you know, be a significant cost to the healthcare system. Um, so, I mean, when we look at the the, the labels now, and we look at, um, you know, the, uh, the population um, that these drugs are covered for, so BMI of thirty, or BMI of twenty or seven um, or more, with one or more weight-related comorbidity. Um, in terms of CBO modeling. In your opinion, do you do you think that they'll their modeling would reflect a similar target population, or do you think they'll use like a more stringent cutoff in order to keep costs or in in order to manage costs? Well, as I said, I think the BMI is a is one of those major factors. We do have we do have a, a data that would tie the BMI to various healthcare costs and people with the large higher BMI having much significantly more healthcare costs long-term. So yes, I think there's no question that uh, uh, if there was any limiting the availability of, to beneficiaries, they will look at whether or not uh, the legislation uh, or assumptions made by what uh, Medicare uh, CMMI or, and, uh, and CMS does in terms of implementing this program, what assumptions, uh, what regulations might uh, exist, uh, which uh, if not defined in legislation, and BMI, I think it's going to be an important variable, and they will take that, uh, whether it's 30 or 27, uh, uh, into consideration in their modeling. There's no question in my mind that BMI is one of those critical back factors in the uh, modeling of this uh, um, uh, this piece, any kind of legislation that would remove the uh, exemptions. And then just looking at, at, at adoption rates, I mean, at the moment, you know, Novo Lee, they can't supply enough of this drug in the unprecedented unprecedented demand. So, I mean, assuming like GLP-1 drugs do get Medicare coverage for obesity, I mean, what sort of adoption rates do you envisage? I mean, you could throw out a ballpark percentage if, if you want. Well, I, I, I really, I think a lot of this will depend upon um, the, uh, the clinical aspect and the clinical condition of the individual patient or the beneficiary. It will de it'll depend upon the provider, uh, the, uh, the uh, doctor or whoever is uh, uh, servicing this individual. Um, I have been told that there are um, 
a number of physicians who for not for the Medicare population, but are well for the Medicare are careful about prescribing these uh, uh, this legis- uh, these drugs because of the some uh, some of the side effects that it might have. And again, the side effects will might be different for a person over the age 65 than for a person under 35. And in fact, um, there are some suggestions that there are some side effects that would be damaging to one's health, um, particularly over. And again, we don't have long-term. Uh, the Novo studies and the other studies are, quite frankly, short-term when it comes to when we look at health, which is over a long-term period of time. So, I think I'm uh, maybe filibustering your question a little bit here. I don't know, but uh, it, uh, there will have to there will be a, a, a take-up rate uh, that will be uh, determined by the interaction between the patient and the clinician. Uh, I'm sure. And so in your earlier comments, you talk about how CBO will analyze uh, the cost of removing the exclusion and, you know, they'll focus on the Medicare population. But one question I I have as I think about this is that as these uh, individuals are on Medicare, uh, let's say they come into Medicare with a BMI over or within the targeted range to qualify for these drugs, is there a scenario where the, they, these individuals have been obese for quite some time that the cumulative health effects of obesity aren't uh, reversible through weight loss, which means uh, any cost savings within the Medicare population could prove to be elusive because uh, that seems to be the the key talking point is that if you open up the statute to allow access to these drugs it will then reduce cost saving or reduce costs over here but is that going to be possible if you know these individuals have been have had health issues or weight issues for quite some time that it's just not uh, reversible by the time they get onto medicare I think you're highlighting, Wayne, the difficulty of the this making this estimate, uh, uh, whether or not these individuals, um, first of all, what the what would have what what would have been their healthcare cost in the absence of taking this drug um, is one thing, and that is a whole set of social economic factors that would have to be taken into consideration, um, and uh, as we as you just outlined. Uh, some indication as to uh, the completion rate for uh, for uh, the course of treatment that we've already talked about, uh, and they'll have to look at uh, trials and studies that uh, demonstrations that have been ongoing to make that kind of determination. Uh, so it's going to be a. Uh, I, I will also say that we have to remember that uh, um, changes in lifestyle. Uh, Reduction in uh, in obesity, which would be, which is our our goal here, when we have 40 percent of the population, the overall population, and, uh, and maybe even higher, uh, maybe maybe different for the people over sixty-five. We want to achieve that, but achieving those healthcare savings um, that would have happened if they had not taken reduced their their uh, BMI um, will take time and. Uh, the, it's not going to be a, 
you're not going to see, I don't think you're going to see, um, and I could be wrong here, I don't think you're going to see quick um, returns uh, on the health on the other on the healthcare side uh, by just one year maybe of taking this particular drug. Uh, taking the drug, uh, maintaining uh, your treatment over a period of time certainly would have a, over time uh, should have a beneficial effect uh, to one's health and reducing health costs. But that's uh, that's part of the difficulty that CBO has to deal with because they're probably even under the best of circumstances they're looking at a ten-year window in terms of the cost and uh, the savings associated with this particular uh, treatment. And so even if this exclusion is removed, uh, are there any guarantees that Part D plans will cover it? Would they be required to cover these kinds of medications? Uh, another good question, um, but lifting the restriction for Part D coverage would not, and I emphasize this, would not require Medicare to cover all of the various obesity drugs, or rather, <coughs> excuse me, Part D plans are only required to cover at least two drugs in each of the therapeutic uh, classes uh, defined as a group of drugs to treat the same disease. So obesity is not considered uh, one of the six uh, protected classes in which plan sponsors must cover all or substantial. So there'll, there'll be some uh, does not require as I want to say, I repeat, uh, limit, lift, lifting the restriction for Part D would not require Medicare coverage for all of the various obesity drugs that are out there and potentially in the market. And so if, as we think about it, and I, I go back to your comment about it would take time for these savings to kind of flow through the system, are the, are the biggest potential cost savings or offsets, are they through uh, less uh, prescription drug use for other chronic conditions? Uh, is it less spending on the hospital side, especially the inpatient side, which would be pretty significant given your earlier point about the, the Medicare trust fund? Like, how do you see these yeah. savings material? I guess, which parts of Medicare do you see these savings materializing? Right. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you ask a very insightful questions and uh, I like I would like to give uh, uh, good responses but on this one I'm going to have to say that I think that the savings uh, that would occur and I think there would be savings over time <coughs> would likely be spread widely over the various health providers but my sense and it's only uh, my sense and I could be wrong is that the major savings uh, would occur in the hospital setting uh, with those um, major chronic health conditions associated with obesity being cardiovascular and hypertension, liver diseases, osteoarthritis, and diabetes. So I, well, there will be benefits across the entire healthcare sector, uh, at least for my concerns and, that I raised about the Medicare trust fund and the HI, I would think that most of the benefit, I would hope that a lot of those uh, uh, savings would occur on the hospital side, uh, but uh, but not all of them, and they'll be across the board. But that that's my general uh, sense, um, at least uh, uh, today. Uh, it could change as we get more information and data about who's, who's actually uh, taking these drugs. 
Okay, cool. Uh, if we um, if we can switch to employers and private pairs, uh, pairs. Um, I mean, what is the current state of the obesity drug coverage in non-Medicare markets? Um, and can you shed any light on, I mean, we've heard that some employers and health plans are scaling back coverage. Um, so if that's true, um, is there any kind of reasoning behind why they're doing that? I, I haven't done an exhaustive research, uh, look at this in the private sector, but we do know that, uh, uh, for instance, the private the private health of all places the private health care system ascension uh, stopped coverage on july first uh, this year of uh, coverage of these anti uh, obesity drugs and they'll no longer be covered in its pharmacy uh, benefit package to nearly 140,000 employees um, uh, that's just one uh, example of where uh, a major, and here it is, it's a health, a private healthcare system is stopping the uh, coverage uh, in their pharmacy benefit package. Now they, uh, by the way, Ascension goes on to highlight that um, they'll look at new, any, any new weight loss medications that become available in the future, they say will not be covered either, but they do point out that coverage for access to weight loss services provided through clinics or provider offices will not be changed. In other words, if there's a clinical reason for having this and prescribed, then uh, they'll continue. But I think that's a first signal that uh, in the private sector, uh, it's becoming an issue. The University of Texas has, uh, has stopped coverage also. Uh, and again, uh, no surprise here, they're blaming it on the massive, what they say is the massive increase in costs uh, that's costing them by, by coverage of these drugs. So, uh, Michael, Mike, I think that as, as these drugs become more available and more advertised out there and are, there's going to be, uh, uh, concerns as to the coverage, the cost of this to employers, employees, uh, and, uh, as a consequence, I think that you will see, uh, um, uh, um, companies, particularly small companies, um, are, will halt the coverage of these medications uh, simply due to the increasing costs uh, that they have to bear. And I mean, sticking with the cost, um, I mean, is there any reason why private payers should cover obesity medications? As, as in, are there any kind of short-term economic benefits that immediately outweigh the cost of the of intervention or treatment? Well, as I said uh, earlier, uh, there are benefits long. Uh, I, I believe there are benefits long term to reducing um, obesity and BMI. Uh, so, uh, if that individual employee is uh, going to be with the company for thirty years or something, uh, ten years even, uh, there should be benefits to the company for providing the coverage for this uh, drug in the sense that it will uh, improve their health, uh, reduce uh, some of the uh, pre, uh, presentment uh, attendance, uh, uh, increase productivity. So there should be benefits. I think the difficulty here is, as always in this situation with healthcare, is how quickly can those uh, benefits be, be uh, seen 
in the individual's health, uh, cost of their health care. Uh, and then you got this real problem uh, with the turnover, that uh, people don't stay in jobs like they used to uh, 30, 40 years. And so the benefits to the company uh, may not be, uh, uh, the cost may be out, exceed any of the long-term benefits to the individual. Now, if all companies do this, maybe it'll have some, but but short-term, it's it's going to be a, a challenge. And I, I believe that's why we're seeing companies that are beginning to halt the coverage of these medications because of the cost, but the benefits are not there in the short term. Yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. And it, uh, it's interesting when you combine a couple of factors, and I don't envy employers as they try to figure out how to develop their health plans, but we're looking at the average employer-sponsored family health coverage cost of, of around $23,000. And employees pay about a quarter of the cost, and the turnover rate is, as you said, higher now than it was, you know, a couple of decades ago, where your average uh, employer may be at your, you might be employed by that employer for less than five years. Now that varies based on how old the individual is, with uh, longer rates of tenure as you get older. But I, I do feel that some of these employers may be looking at the fact that I only have this employer for potentially a handful of years. I'm not going to benefit economically, but maybe this is just a question of it's a moral imperative to provide access to these drugs. And even if they're not going to be with me 10 years from now where I might see some cost savings, I have a responsibility now to provide coverage. And I think that is probably going to be the the question for a lot of these employers moving forward. I think you I think you nailed it. Uh, it uh, they'll look at their. Let's be honest. A company is going to look at its bottom line. It's going to look at its margins, and uh, uh, will they offset that by the broader issue of, of something that's uh, beneficial to public? public writ large and maybe the benefits to society uh, rather than to just their bottom line company uh, uh, financial statement. And that's, that's tough. Uh, and it requires, uh, it seems to me, C-suite to be thinking about what is their role in, um, in the broader issue of public health in this country and the cost of health writ large, not just to their, uh, just not to their company. Right, and, and so I wanted to end on the Inflation Reduction Act, and I feel like we can't have a conversation about anything drug price related without talking about the IRA, especially when you think about how the law treats drugs uh, that are that have the same ingredient. In, in other words, uh, price cuts apply uh, across the ingredients. So when you think about Wigovi, uh, same ingredient as Ozempic, different dosage, uh, there could be an argument that, well, sure, we know that what the, the list price is, we know that there are rebates, but uh, if Ozempic, which could be subject to negotiated pricing starting in 2027, uh, is included, which we think it will based on spending, so would, so would Wegovi. 
and so that might actually create downward pressure and and make this more affordable uh, for beneficiaries and for the government. So do you have any thoughts on how uh, this this debate over expanding access to obesity drugs and the IRA uh, could could play out? Uh, a couple of thoughts. Number one, uh, I, I understand that next week uh, CMS will announce the 10 drugs that are going to be subject to uh, negotiations. But I also note that uh, we have court cases that are starting. This is going to, this is, it's, implementation of this is maybe tied up uh, just from uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry's concerns about this legislation. But to your specific question, um, the CMS guidance uh, that has been issued to date notes that one price, one price will be negotiated for each drug and it will in a, in a ref, reflect the weighted average of the various formulations, dosages, and strengths. So the guidance also notes that the timing is measured from the launch of the first version of the product. So the price will apply to all of its uses, including weight loss. So that's uh, that's that's the guidance that's out there. It may change, but I don't I don't think uh, uh, there there will be one price it will for each drug that's negotiated. Yeah, and and so we are looking forward to seeing that first list uh, scheduled for release next week. And you mentioned the litigation aspects of this all. I think we could probably have a separate podcast on the litigation outlook for uh, the negotiation provisions of the IRA. Uh, but uh, we've had plenty to talk about today, and I think we'll be talking about this uh, issue over the coming months and for the rest of this Congress at least. And I think with that, we'll wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. Uh, we're grateful to Bill for joining us today, and we thank you, the listener, for joining us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our BI research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BI Go. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.